Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. In this episode, we take you to early 20th century Chicago and a new wave of Black American artistry springing forth from the minds and hands of a generation that was born free. Margaret Burroughs was a renowned visual artist throughout her lifetime, and she was active from her early adulthood in the 1930s all the way until her death in 2010. But that's far from where her talents stopped. Burroughs was an educator, a writer, a poet, and an advocate for art that represented black lives. In 1941, Burroughs helped to found Chicago's Southside Community Arts Center, a project of the Works Progress Administration, and the only such community arts center that is still operational to this day. Burroughs was just 23 years old when it opened. Youth and the vulnerability of being young and black are recurring themes in Burroughs' work, and perhaps no piece of hers represents these themes more starkly than Sleeping Boy. We don't know who this sleeping boy was, or if he was just a product of Burroughs' imagination, but you'd be forgiven for not assuming that he was sleeping. In a cut linoleum print, Burroughs' boy is curled into a ball almost in the fetal position. A spotlight shines on him, contrasting the soft waves of his hair with the rigid lines of brick behind him. Is he outside? Is he safe? Burroughs leaves it to us to decide. To Sarak, a rapper and activist hailing from southeast Washington, D.C., the boy seems vulnerable. He reminds her of black children throughout American history, children who are so often put in the impossible position of being asked to stay young and yet forced to grapple with adult issues every day. When I saw this boy... And I I immediately noted that the title was Sleeping Boy, but he didn't look like he was sleeping to me. Yeah, to me either. Yeah, and and when I looked at the surroundings, when I looked at this brick wall, he's obviously, well, to me, he was obviously outside. Um, To me, he seemed to be crying or hiding. And I instantly thought about how the experience of, of so many young Black boys and just young black children in general who are 
who live in, you know, urban environments, who live in communities. I'm assuming that if he's outside, you know, he's maybe a, um, a victim of an impoverished community or a community that, you know, or a family that is not, is lacking of the resources to provide him with a secure home. And then I noticed that the the light around him, it, you know, is highlighting his, his figure. And it automatically made me think of like a spotlight and how, you know, black youth are targeted in these particular communities. And it made me think of like police spotlights. And in that regard, he seemed to be, you know, hiding from the glare of that of that spotlight. And I thought about, you know, the many young black boys like Tamir Rice and, and Trayvon Martin and, and countless others who are targeted simply because of their environment. And, you know, that brings such sorrow and how that much, much must feel to have um, the weight of that, to walk around with the weight of that and feel like you don't belong, <laughs> yet you're under a microscope constantly. Um, and it was something about this black and white and black and white usually implies like a starkness. And sometimes that starkness is is utilized to make you feel, but black and white almost can serve in the opposite way. Because when we think of like using color, when we think of color, we think of when we see an image in color, it's more fleshed out, it's more relatable. Um, but I, th- I see this black and white and I see, you know, this boy and I think of this this method that she's used is almost a way of showing how, you know, these boys and these children are not seen as human, are not seen as beings of value, um, just as numbers or just as, you know, a stereotype or so it was just interesting the the multitude of, of just layers that I saw because looked at another way, you know. I see, you know, other images and that that made me think of others, other music that I've created that ties into that, you know, not so specific to, you know, the experience of black childhood in these urban centers, but the many ways that we as just human beings hide ourselves. You know, we uh, look for light and validation outside of ourselves and we hide what we think of as the worst parts of ourselves or the parts that the parts of our story that we feel make us less than or belittle us or make us less worthy of value in the world. Um, so that was the, the other way that I looked at it. So it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting how viewing an art piece, you know, leaves so much for interpretation, especially in visual art, whereas in storytelling through the voice, through hip hop, through writing, uh, it's a little bit more clear of, of our artistic perspective because we're using language. For more on Margaret Burroughs and Sleeping Boy, we turn to Shelley Langdale, the National Gallery of Arts curator and head of Modern Prints and Drawings. Interestingly, this print was made in 1953, right after a year that she spent in Mexico. So she learned to make line of cuts, of which this is one, in Mexico. And one of the interesting aspects of the medium for her was that it was a relatively inexpensive medium. It was literally blocks of linoleum that were easily attainable and something that could be used easily in the community center back in Chicago. It also was, it was a very expressive medium. You take the lino cut block and you 
have a knife that you carve into it. So you carve away the lines and the raised area of the block will print. It's known as a relief print. And the knife moves very smoothly through the linoleum, which is a fairly soft material. And so you can get these wonderful gestures and, and different nuances of curvature in the, in the line and textures that you can create. And what I love about this print is particularly how she articulates so well the different textures of the child's hair. Um, you get a sense of the shine on his shoes with just the few white lines that she puts on the black, on the solid black of the shoe, the undulation of the wonderful soft folds of his clothing, and then the sort of more architectural uh, straight lines that define the bricks in the background. Interestingly, we have titled it Sleeping Boy because that's what she wrote on this particular print and at the bottom where she signed it. But in a different collection, the very same print, she wrote a different title called, it is called Mexican Boy. So this is likely a recollection uh, from her time in Mexico. It's an intriguing image because I feel like you could have a different response depending on the day that you look at it. When we think of Margaret Burroughs, what stands out most is perhaps the subjects that she portrays and her real interest in promoting black artists, telling stories about black life experience and history that were not typically found in a lot of art that people saw. What clues do you see about this boy and who he is from this piece of art? His image seems to be highlighted, and that to me looks like a spotlight. And, you know, the fact that he is or seems to be outside, you know, to me that, that gives clues to his resources, his family's resources or lack thereof, not being able to provide a home for him. And I just think about young black children in, you know, many of these communities who, in a sense, are targeted in many ways. I look at his image and I think of a Tamir Rice or a Trayvon Martin, um, who they're in many ways victims of their circumstances. And he seems to be bereft and at the same time hiding from, you know, this microscope. The only time that these children are seen very often are, you know, through a criminalizing, criminalizing lens. And that's what that spotlight makes me feel like, you know, like a police spotlight or, you know, a media spotlight, you know, that highlights their lack of humanity by calling on some kind of old crime or uh, blaming them in some way for, for being a victim of, of whatever circumstances or whatever fate they've uh, succumbed to. Her use of, of black and white is, is interesting to me because like black and white, you know, often is used to for this, you know, feeling of starkness and it can be very visceral in its effect. But to me, black and white can also be used to dehumanize in a way because we think of color, we see an image in color 
that fleshes out that image. It makes it more real. It it fosters more of a connection when something is is in color because it seems more real. And I think the the usage of black and white in this image kind of serves to highlight the ways in which these children are unseen yet, you know, yet put under this targeting scope, you know, put under this spotlight um, for all the wrong reasons, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so interesting to me. But the fact that, you know, visual art leaves so much up for interpretation as opposed to, you know, uh, verbal music, you know, sonic, written work. I look at this and I see so many layers to it. So was Margaret Burroughs a a political person? Did she often include um, commentary or reflections on on politics and social issues in her art? Somewhat, but less so in her art. Her art tended to be much more about family and community, and at least in in her printmaking, tended to be about family and community. It was political in the sense that it was sending, it was pointedly sending positive messages about Black lives and history. She was definitely an activist. She was, that was one of the reasons she founded the DeSable Museum. She has included images, uh, you know, drawn from history, uh, that including one that will be in an upcoming show Afro-Atlantic Histories that's going to open shortly at the National Gallery that shows a black Venus. And she has turned it into a celebratory image. It was actually taken from a uh, 18th century publication about uh, the slave trade. And she has sort of subverted it into a picture, a positive picture of a beautiful black woman and, and retitled it Black Venus. It, it may not be political as overtly in the sense that we think of posters and so forth, of black fists proclaiming black power and um, things like that, but it remains political in her intent. One of the, the stories, another story that is told about her often was in her own efforts to work against some of the rules interestingly, that we're experiencing right now with pushback against critical race theory, she would insert her own additional history lessons in her classes that she taught in high school uh, that were not limited to the history of white governmental figures and heroes, but she would include Harriet Tubman and um, George Washington Carver and uh, Martin Luther King, who was uh, in the moment, in addition to others. And she tells stories about how the principal would show up at her door and she would immediately slip into a, a sentence like, and that's why Betsy Ross sewed the American flag. And then she would immediately, as soon as he left, go back to her filling in the history of uh, black lives. Because I, I went back um, to look at what some of the headlines were during the year of 1953, a year that, that began in the U.S. with uh, President Truman announcing that we had developed a hydrogen bomb. The height of the Cold War, McCarthyism, um, Richard Nixon is sworn in as VP under 
Eisenhower, the state of Georgia approved the very first literature censorship board in the country. I mean, this was a time that was very fraught. And then I look at this picture and it it just resonates with me. <laughs> Wanting to hide your head, needing that moment. And in in to that extent, I wondered to what extent to you this still feels relevant because we're kind of in another one of those fraught moments in history, right? Yes, I think that's true. And there's been some interesting discussion around a fairly recent biography on Burroughs in this particular moment. One of the reasons she went to Mexico was because of increasing pressure on teachers who had to take oaths that they were loyal to the country um, and did not have communist ties. And she was actually brought in to be questioned and was told not to share that with anybody else, that the fact that they had asked her to come in for questioning. And this is when she was teaching in the Disabla High School. After she left her interrogation, she immediately shared that with other teachers. And that was one of the things that inspired her to go to Mexico to get away from some of those tensions in uh, Chicago at that time, and particularly directly in her teaching cohort. And it was that experience in Mexico where she felt that kind of leveled playing field and so admired studying with Leopoldo Mendez, who she had met in the United States when he came to lecture in Chicago, seeing what the power of the printmaking uh, workshop, the Teodografica Popular, could do in spreading the word and helping to change people's attitudes and ideas that sort of empowered her when she came back to invest in her own sort of activism eventually establishing the Tassabla Museum, working as an educator, continuing to direct the Southside Community Center through until she retired in 1985. Here is Sarak's great escape in its entirety. And I know I got a lot to be grateful for People dying, everyone my heart breaking for But this pain and old friends still can't shake the boy What you try and leave behind, you'll soon be facing towards Catch me if you can I'm the gingerbread man Oh, 
hotels, complex textiles, the cushion of fraud trail. They tiptoeing on the edge without a guardrail. The bad truth got them like refugees, no pros will. Ghetto superstars out euthanizing they souls. Stuck between negative forces like nuclear pros. Addicted to bills, so they keep an eye on the Jones. Hoping they don't blow up in their face, keep an eye on the drones. I know poor too, I know hard knocks. I done bought a bruise of entire blocks. Trying to beat me blue and black, but that's a poor excuse to tell the world what you are not. Cause what you bury is a nerf when they exude your plot. That's why I dive so deep in it. Cause me and this relationship is cold deep in it. Obsessed. I got so many miles between me and my tries. I could be flying scot free, but I still be running what's next. Catch me if you can. I'm the gingerbread man. Price. Death for my innocence, all the remains have been severed and sliced Evidence wiped clean, that's why I'm a little jaded complexion of type green I know too many men trying to make minutes last Past the final grains of sand, descending into the narrow glass Escaping their conscience like prisons class Instead of owning it like an older phenom, we gonna wear the mask This ain't finger pointing, I'm no angel, I've been guilty of it Now with every sentence, I can watch my sins, I'm filthy of it Running, we been running now, the moment's creeping stealthy on them Who am I to judge? I'm not completely healed myself, your honor Wise woman told me never change your future's odds. You don't stop and let reflection treat your suit your scars. If I keep racing my fatal mirror, the youth I lost. A cautionary tale of how an evolution's paused. Catch me if you can. I'm the gingerbread man. why you connected Great Escape to this piece? For so many of us, uh, it just becomes easier to try to run away from this reality in which we are so often belittled, you know, oppressed, unseen, unheard, suppressed. So for a lot of people, we create fantasies, you know, we don't or we don't address or we hide or try to conform those parts of ourselves that don't blend in with mainstream society. Um, we fabricate these tales of our backgrounds because it does get exhausting, you know, and not even specifically about like experiencing social injustice on a daily basis, but just Constantly having to speak to your value, constantly having to fight for your right to exist. So some people would rather just ignore that part or, you know, try to create ways in, in, in which to escape from these past lives, suppress the, the parts of themselves that are p- too painful to face whether that's collective history, whether that's personal or familial trauma, you know, we find ways to hide from that and compartmentalize those things within ourselves. But the song Great Escape is, is 
that eventually all of these things come to light, no matter how much you hide or try to run from it. And that's speaking to the individual and that's speaking to, you know, this particular country. You know, we talk about I think we talked a lot about the past presidency and then the one before we saw racism and injustice rearing its ugly head. And and we had to yet again say that this is not new. This is just a Band-Aid pulled off, you know, because unless we address it, it is going to emerge again and again and again. Um, So that's why for this piece, The Great Escape felt so relevant because I saw, you know, in his attempt to hide, you know, a version, another version of him will be facing the same fate if we don't work to address what he's experiencing, if we don't work to correct what he's experiencing. We tend to create these fantasies for ourselves or we tend to ignore, try to escape, um, whether through, uh, you know, some people use uh, substances to escape. Some people use fantasy to escape, like so many ways in which we try to escape those harder parts of our lives that, you know, upon reflection, you know, might cause us to break down, you know, might cause us to um, lose our will to go forward, you know. But in The Great Escape, what, you know, the ho- the point of that song is that You know, I'm recalling instances in my own childhood in which um, are painful memories in which are painful for me to confront. But those memories will continue to resurface and affect aspects of my life as I advance into adulthood. Um, Those parts of my childhood that I felt were lost, those parts of my innocence that I felt were lost, that I attempt to suppress in my efforts to not write about them and my efforts to not recount them to relive them um, those things you know are regurgitated in many different aspects of my life and I think about um, when I see this this image and I see this boy I think about how if we continue to ignore existences that will resurface and recycle throughout the course of this country's history throughout the course of our own you know familial pattern familial and personal patterns so yeah that that song really was you know just a call to remove the masks you know to confront those those darker parts of our past um or be faced with them when we're when we're the least prepared Another song you've chosen was Rockwell's America. You're referring to Norman Rockwell, who would have been active, very active and popular at the time that Margaret Burroughs made this print in 1953. And I mean, some of the lines in there fit exactly what you're talking about. I keep burning in this personal hell till the inferno dies, government feeding us bullshit instead of truth, giving birth to a dishonest nation, we call it fertile lies. Tell me a little bit about what made you associate Rockwell's America with this piece? Probably because of my first interpretation of the piece um, as a young black boy, a young black child, and thinking about um, the 
hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of black children who feel targeted and experience a very different experience of America than we're shown on, you know, the sitcoms we grew up watching or, you know, in in the case of Norman Rockwell, usually his portrayals of American family life are very idyllic, are very white. And so it was just it just was in stark contrast to, you know, what I knew, you know, and we think about the erasure of so many of these voices and stories of black people who didn't have, you know, the six-figure home, a hot meal on the table every night who were experiencing communities ravaged by, you know, the crack era. And, you know, it was just this alternate reality. And when I look at this boy, I'm like, whose America is this? You know, where are the think pieces about this? You know, what is his story? Um, I don't see happiness here. I don't see, you know, To me, when I see him, I'm wondering if he's had access to a hot meal. He seems abandoned. So, yeah, so that that song for me, and especially, you know, talks about rallying together to protect these young black boys and and black girls in the song Rockwell's America, as I relate my own personal experience from childhood. And and um, and I my instinct, my instinct is who's protecting this boy. Keep it black thought and black fists. Yeah, I'm always on some black shit. Probably got me on the blacklist. I'm willing to die for these black kids. Are you willing to die for these black kids? We gotta survive for these black kids. We gotta be wise for these black kids. Yeah. Wake up, no makeup, have naked, I feel like I'm the sh- Pardon my language, but hang-ups do not define the kid. No, I'm not flawless, I'm scarred up and I'm fine with it. My body are the laundry list of all of life's kindness. I want to go to the, the third piece that you chose, which is forever. And again, I, I don't want to impose my own reactions to that on your thought process, so I'm going to ask you about why you chose this. But I, I had to say, when I was listening to your song, I kept thinking you were like talking directly to this kid because you're you're saying shine on shine on him baby you're a star you better be exactly who you are it's i mean to me i could almost hear your voice speaking to this child um but what did you think why did you connect forever to sleeping boy because he's trying to make himself small He's hiding himself. He is uncomfortable with this light that, from whatever source, is glaring at him. So when I think about forever, when I think about encouraging us to find the light and the shine within ourselves, um, I am encouraging him, in a sense, to um, reclaim the light, you know, and redirect his own, you know, inner light that's powerful and beautiful and valuable of being seen. Um, Redirect that um, towards the world, you know, 
show them not in an attempt to prove your worth because you don't owe that to anyone, but be proud of who you are. Um, you know, despite your circumstances, I talk about that a lot. You know, we oftentimes feel like our environments define us and they follow us or in many ways haunt us for the rest of our lives, almost like we're stamped or branded by, you know, this these experiences that make us fallible, make us um, stained or imperfect. And I feel like society in this picture has stained this boy um, and deemed him imperfect. So I'm encouraging him to stand and shine and take up all the space that he needs to um, because we need him, you know, just as much as he needs his light. There's a line in that song, um, spend half my life trying to find my light from outside sources while the only voice that mattered came from me. Um, and, you know, I see this, this, you know, spotlight in a sense, you know, and him uh, experiencing this light from this outside source in a very negative connotation. But, you know, really the only light that matters is the one that is within him and the one in which he has yet to shine on the world. You better shine on them, baby, you a star You better be exactly who you are Forever Cause they gon' try and change your heart Don't let up Cause you're so damn fine Just the way you You better are. shine on them, baby, you a star You better be exactly who you are Forever Cause they gon' try and change your heart Don't let up Cause you're so damn fine Just the way you, you better are. shine on them, baby, you a star You better You better shine on them, baby, you a star You better be exactly who you are Forever Cause they gon' try and change your heart Don't let up Cause you're so damn fine Just the way you are Thanks once again to Sarak for joining us. You can learn more about her, Margaret Burroughs, and all of the artwork we talk about on this show on the Sound Thoughts on Art webpage, nga.gov slash podcast. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Art's Music Department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Art's Head of Music Programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, be well.